you for listening to season two of Spotless, Breaking the Boundaries of Television. Presented by two media powerhouses, Triple Lift and Advertising Week, Spotless brings you in-depth conversations with the leaders who are driving this evolution. So, you know, listen up. Evolution, we came from monkeys, now we're humans. Who knows where we are next? You're going to learn something on this podcast. Michael Kasson is the founder, chairman, and CEO of MediaLink, a leading strategic advisory firm. Described as the ultimate power broker, he is a trusted advisor on speed dial with every major executive in the media, marketing, entertainment, and technology C-suite. Michael and his global team of more than 125 specialists provide counsel for navigating the age of digital disruption in areas including marketing transformation, data and technology solutions, growth strategy, private equity advisory, executive search, and talent development. In 2019, he was inducted into the American Advertising Federation's Hall of Fame, which is considered the highest honor in advertising. Michael has been instrumental in redefining major tentpole events like CES, Can Lion, and Mobile World Congress for the greater marketing landscape. He has been named one of the top media executives in America by AdAge and in 2018 was honored on AdWeek's Power 100 list and on Variety's index of the 500 most influential business leaders shaping the global entertainment industry. Michael has also been named to the Hollywood Reporter's Silicon Beach 25 list of the most powerful digital players in LA. Michael, it's great to see you as always and truly an honor to have you on the show. Well, Bo, it's a pleasure to be here, and particularly for me, because I've known you now for many years, and I'm so thrilled with your success and how your career has advanced over the years that I've known you, and I feel a a special fondness and appreciation for uh, everything that's Bo Judah. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much. It it really does mean a lot, and again, it really means a lot to have you on the show. But yes, I didn't realize I had you on retainer. So (laughs) I was like an expensive compliment. (laughs) Well, this may come as a surprise to you, but you are a tremendously successful advisor, thought leader, and expert on all things advertising, marketing, media, and technology. First off, congrats on all of your success. But taking a step back, I'd love to learn a little more about how you got started and what ultimately inspired your decision to get into the media industry all those years ago. Well, I began my journey uh, professionally as a tax lawyer, Bo. Actually, if I go all the way back, I was pre-dental, pre-medical in my, in my freshman year of college, and I called my parents. Uh, I was uh, just 16 when I went to college. I was lucky that I graduated high school a little faster than usual. I skipped a year. So um, I called my parents in uh, about second or third month of my freshman year, and I said, I don't think I'm going to want to go to be a dentist. I just think that that's not exactly the right path for me. Um, And and I was nervous that they would be upset. And they said, well, what are you thinking? And of course, you don't have to make those decisions as a freshman in college, but that would impact my major. And I said, I want to switch to an English major because I I really feel that I want to go into um, law And I think that would be a good idea because I think what I've understood and some of the homework I had done indicated that uh, a good lawyer as a practitioner should also be a good writer. 
And so I thought maybe an English major would be interesting. And that's how I got started. Um, I did practice law uh, for the first 10 years of my career with a specialty in tax. I went to graduate school after law school to receive a master's. And I thought it was a good way to differentiate myself from what was a, a throng of lawyers at that moment in time. And um, I enjoyed it, but I always had a hankering to be the client. And you know, some lawyers are better as strategists not being the client and some lawyers, and I think I'd like to count myself amongst that group, had a vision that I would be better on the other side, i.e. being the client, not just from a financial perspective, but interestingly enough, considering I run a consulting business now, I wanted to be the I wanted to be the person doing it as a person as opposed to the person talking about doing it or telling you how to do it, if you will, as a client. So that was that's kind of how it started down that road. And I knew that if if you look at your career as a driving on a highway, um, I knew there was exit signs. I just didn't know where they were or where they would lead me. In this case, it led me into business, which is where I hoped I would be anyway. So I hope that's not too long-winded an answer. No, no, not at all. I mean, I, I do think it's fair. Um, I think a, a lot of lawyers probably have that same thought, um, but I guess we'll never know how, uh, how successful of a career Michael Casson, the lawyer, would have had. Well, there you go. Um, it, it worked out for a while and, and I did enjoy it. And it was a great basis. You know, if I had to do it over again, Bo, I probably wouldn't have gone to law school. I probably would have gone to business school okay. because that might have been a better trajectory. It's not terrible that I understand the law and I understand mm -hmm. how to read a contract. You know, my tax law skills are out of date because that's a law that keep, you know, those laws keep changing. But basic contract you read a contract and if you're educated to do that, you can do it. But if I look at it in retrospect, when people ask me, young people ask me, should I go to law school or business school? If, if my ultimate goal is to be a business person, then my advice is go to business school because the, the law school background doesn't hurt. And again, I did it for 10 years, but I would think that an MBA, if I were going to do it again, I probably would do a joint um, MBA at JD program. What I did again was I went to college, law school, graduate school, sure. but my graduate was for tax. So again, it's just a question of looking back and looking forward. Uh, but that was, that's how the journey began. Sure. Well, uh, everything worked out. Thank God for that. Well, for most of our listeners, MediaLink is a household name, especially for any of those who've ever seen MediaLink operating firsthand at major industry events like CES and CanLions. But for some of our listeners who aren't as familiar at a high level, can you give a little background on MediaLink and, and some of the key ways that you seek to support your clients? Absolutely. Um, I think of MediaLink as a strategic advisory firm, Bo, that lives at an intersection. And I think that intersection is aptly described as marketing, media, advertising, entertainment, and technology as those various um, disciplines come together. And the various constituents around a table, if there were a table, uh, it, it, where I found MediaLink, where I found MediaLink and where I hope MediaLink is positioned in the, in the marketplace is at the center of that, uh, at the center of that intersection, working with all the constituents, uh, the creators, the media sellers, 
the agencies, the measurement companies, the platforms, uh, you know, that, that whole gambit. Um, and what, what, we, what we try to do is a pretty simple strategy. We try to bring practical magic to the conversation. The company, as I founded it, because I'm an operator, wasn't, wasn't I, I didn't have a vision for a consulting firm. I had a vision for um, a, 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 an advisory circumstance. And you know the way I look at it? There used to be a great tagline for a company that you probably have never heard of called Archer Daniels Midland. Archer Daniels Midland may not even exist anymore as a brand, but they used to have a great campaign and it said, we don't make things, we just make things better. At MediaLink, the way I describe it is we don't make things, we just make things happen. That's all, we, we, we're not in a product business, we're in a service business. So I think that our role, our role is to help make things happen better, smarter, faster with those constituents that I alluded to earlier. Um, and, and look, it, as it relates to a household name, uh, the concept that marketers understand is aided awareness versus unaided awareness. So if I were to say to you at the intersection of marketing, media, advertising, entertainment, and technology, have you heard of MediaLink? That's aided awareness. I'm proud to say that there's a high percentage of the consumer in media and marketing and advertising for sure that would say, yes, of course I've heard of MediaLink. So from the standpoint of having built a brand that has name awareness, I feel like I succeeded. What was always a challenge for me, less now than it used to be, was at that intersection, you'd say, well, you've heard of MediaLink. Do you know exactly what they do? We were never as good as telling that story in the marketplace as I would have liked. We've gotten better because the work speaks for itself. But just what you said is one of the challenges we faced. We were so successful with our tentpole event strategy that we ended up being defined by that by too many people, including yourself just now. You said, you know, can or CES. <laughs> Literally, our event strategy and our event work is very important to us, but it's less than 10% of our business. Sure. The 90% of our business is really what I hope people focus on, which is our core strategy, our executive recruitment, our organizational redesign, our, our tentpole strategy against event. Those are all the things that make up MediaLink. And if I was to pose a challenge to myself, which I do every day, is how do we better define MediaLink service offering in, in the marketplace? I'm sure, given all of that, that 2020 was a, a really busy year for you. And it's pretty safe to say that 2020 was a pivotal year for the media and technology industry as a whole. We saw the acceleration of some consumer trends and a major shift in consumer behaviors, in particular around content and streaming. How have you been advising your clients over the past year? And, and what has your experience been like navigating through this time? Well, um, nearly every aspect of our business had to adapt during this past 15 months. It's hard to imagine it's 15 months or so uh, since the pandemic began. Um, but, you know, you said it. Those things that people would have previously thought might take five years to be, uh, you know, adapted, you know, as, as daily habits took five days. You know, as we said a lot during the, the pandemic, 
um, you know, days became hours, hours became minutes, minutes became seconds in terms of adapt, you know, adoption. We saw it with e-commerce. We saw it with so many of the um, uh, of, of, of those kinds of things, but we saw it in this kind of a communication on, on a Zoom call. Um, I think we're just reaching a point now where people are really hankering to get back in person. The, the idea of breakfast meetings or lunch meetings or you know, in-office, in-person meetings are becoming the default again. It's like dining out for so long during the pandemic, if we were making plans with our pod, with that group of friends that we were comfortable with, the default was, are we going to your house or you're coming to our house? Not what we were used to traditionally, which restaurant are we going to? What I've seen, and again, metaphorically, what I've seen is that default now is which restaurant are we going to? You're not automatically presuming that it's in someone's home. Like in a meeting, in a conversation, you're not automatically assuming it's a Zoom call or a Google Hangout or a Microsoft Teams, you're now finding people, you know, working their way back to, am I going to meet you for lunch? Are we going to get together at your office? So uh, we're watching behavior change again. And as we watch that, we're going to see how fast that adoption happens. So many companies are focused on the future of work, not whether or not we're going to work, where we're going to work. You know, I've seen one company recently issue a, a, a pronouncement that said we're going to be office centric. That doesn't say everyone's coming back to work. I mean, to an office, but it means there's office centricity, which means your natural uh, habitat should be viewed as the office, not at home. So we're watching those things happen. And what we've been advising our clients is to have two words in mind flexibility on many sides of the equation and understanding the uncertainty that if you're a seller, your client is uncertain about what to buy. And if you're therefore in that position, you need to be flexible. And, and Bo, I'll, I'll, I'll end this question or this answer on, on a note which I refer to frequently which is there are two books that were written in 1859, an important year in literature that apply today more than ever. And I love this part because it makes me sound very erudite. <laughs> but in, in, in 1859, two gentlemen named Charles, Charles Darwin and Charles Dickens wrote their most famous uh, uh, tomes, A Tale of Two Cities and On the Origin of the Species respectively. And if you think of the opening line of A Tale of Two Cities, it was the best of times, the worst of times. That certainly applies to 2020 and 2021. For many, it was, I don't know, many people who had the best of times, but for some people, it was worse than for others. And, and the other Charles Dickens, I mean, Darwin, who wrote On the Origin of the Species, talked about only those who can adapt will survive, or the survival of the fittest. And it isn't just the survival of the fittest, it's the need to adapt. Think of those two sentences, those two lines from famous books and how they apply today as much as ever. And that's the way we're looking at life. Some it's been great, some it's been not great, but whoever you are, you've had to adapt. And it's also great to see that English major being put to good use. See that? It comes full <laughs> circle. At this point, every major streaming service has launched and everyone's streaming service cards, so to speak, are on the table. 
from what you've seen, how would you rate their different strategies? And what are some of the things that you've liked and, and some of the things that you think could be improved? Well, two things. First of all, I don't think everybody's strategy is fully on the table. We know that some are coming up with AVOD uh, opportunities that aren't yet fully formed or fully discussed. So, you know, we have Peacock, which is clearly AVOD. We have Hulu, which is both. Uh, we have Disney Plus, which right now is just SVOD. We have uh, HBO Max, which is SVOD, but is talked about and has, you know, thrown down the gauntlet that they're going to have an AVOD opportunity. Netflix clearly hasn't spoken ever about advertising, and I don't think they ever will. They've been very clear in that they're not going to do that. Amazon, uh, you know, not 100% clear. So I don't know that all the cards are yet on the table. If I take that analogy, I think some people are still shuffling the deck. But, you know, I, I've been a believer in some of the early research that the normal consumer is going to end up with a package, if you will, or a basket of between four and five services. And, you know, you tell me where you think it falls, but everyone's going to include Netflix. I believe everyone's going to include Disney Plus. I think everybody's going to include HBO Max. I think everyone's going to try and include a Peacock. So where does that leave? And when I say HBO, when I say Disney Plus, I'm putting Hulu into that bucket okay. as well. But where does that leave Amazon? Apple. I mean, how can you have a conversation about anything where Apple's in the space and not have Apple front and center? And yet in streaming, they haven't demonstrated that yet. That muscle isn't as fully formed as others. So you know, I think the top five are clear. But the question is, when is the consumer going to say enough is enough? I cut the cord. I don't have 500 channels that I'm not watching, but I also can't afford, you know, $150 a month for streaming services. I will tell you that uh, I was with a few of my grandchildren on the holiday weekend uh, on Memorial Day, and they wanted to watch Cruella. So I said, okay, great. And we weren't going to the movie theater. Sure. And so I quickly you know, did the premium mm -hmm. and realized it was $29.99 to watch the movie. Yeah. And I'll, I'll venture a guess that I'm not the average consumer. But I thought about that and I thought, okay. And I, I mentioned it to my wife. I said, Ronnie, you know, that's interesting. It was $29.99. That's not going to stop me from doing it. And she looked at me and says, yeah, but if we took, we had two of the grandkids. She said, if we took them to the movies to see it, it would be more than $29.99. I said, fair point. I'm not arguing that. It's just that think about that from a consumer, average consumer consideration. That's a $30 purchase. That's real money. That's a month subscription you know, to two, that's more than a month subscription to two of the leading services for one movie. Now, I like the movie, by the way, it was a good movie. I okay. can recommend it better than I thought it was going to be. Good to know. I, I recently rented one of the, the Disney um, releases and, and I thought the exact same thing. Um, again, I did it, but it, it does make you kind of stop and, and think. And wonder, and yeah, and exactly. And wonder what the average consumer is going to do because sure. I'm not sure what average means anymore. But, um, you know, I'm not sure. Building off that a little bit, um, I recently watched the Champions League final on Paramount Plus, which was, which was great because I'm one of those millennials that doesn't subscribe to cable. But I'm curious how you think live fits into, you know, the strategies of premium SVOD services, um, you know, and whether it's something kind of just a nice to have or, or something that um, really differentiates. I think it's going to be a differentiator. I think it's going to be a differentiator. 
look, library matters. Um, you know, I was excited to see the uh, Friends reunion. It, I, I didn't know what to expect. I hadn't read anything in advance. It was just, hey, a Friends reunion. I'm curious to watch it. And I didn't know if they were going to actually play a reunion out like here they are now versus reminiscing. I didn't know because I didn't pay attention until I watched it. But I quite enjoyed it. So I think, you know, special events, live events, I think that is going to be a differentiator for for the streaming services, not just library content or not just new content, you know, not just new scripted series or whatever. And I think at now, what's the name? Warner Brothers Discovery. Um, you know, I think we're going to see, um, you know, a mix of that. You know, I don't think Discovery's playbook is going to be thrown out the window for Discovery Plus, nor do I think HBO Max's playbook is going to be thrown out the window. I think there's going to be a new playbook. Well, it's interesting you bring those up. I mean, obviously, um, it's hard to talk about major media companies without mentioning, you know, the recent transactions that and, and of course, Amazon and, and MGM. Um, putting those aside, unless you have something specific you'd like to comment on, I'd love to get your thoughts, you know, on the broader market activity looking ahead. Well, yeah, look, I, I think there's more M&A coming. And, you know, my, my only comment on Amazon MGM is I like my martinis uh, straight up with a twist. <laughs> and uh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't uh, screw around with James Bond. Whatever you do, Mr. Bezos, uh, leave James Bond as James Bond, please. I couldn't agree more. Well, moving on a little bit, I uh, actually recall you once mentioning that Dummy starring Anna Kendrick was one of your favorite Quibi originals, which you can, of course, now watch on the Roku channel. Right. And over the past 12 plus months, the fast channel space, like the Roku channel and Samsung TV Plus, have, have seen tremendous growth, not only in users and minutes watched, but also in the size of their content offering. I think they both have like 200 or so channels now. I'd love to get your thoughts on this particular space and how you see it fitting into the, the future of CTV. Well, I, look, um, there's no shortage of content, no shortage of places you can get it. I think centralizing it and, and making it easier for the consumer is one of the challenges. You know, what do I watch? Where do I watch it? How do I find it? Number one. And I think the CTV space, you know, the companies like Roku, and I know, you know, in, in previous lives for you, Bo, Roku was an important investment of companies you've worked at in the sure. past. I think they were prescient in, in seeing what the opportunities are. And I think what Anthony Wood and the team at Roku are doing is brilliant. And obviously you never rule out what's happening with Samsung in terms of that connected TV world. It's the future and, and it's here. It's not coming, mm -hmm. it's here, full stop. And the acquisition of the Quibi content library was a smart move because there was good content in there. And, and I happen to agree. I thought Dummy was, was, a, was a, a wonderful show. Um, and, and it underscored uh, why I think Roku's a good bet uh, relative to what they're doing because they're, they're smart about increasing the content. Mode. So I, 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 I support that. And I think there'll be more of that, not less of that. Yeah, and I think optionality for, for consumers is great, right? Absolutely. Well, recently during all of the annual upfront presentations, digital strategies and capabilities were really at the forefront. You know, WarnerMedia, of course, announced their recently just launched ad-supported tier for HBO Max. And, you know, given the fact that the upfront was ultimately designed to support, you know, a big push around linear fall TV, what do you think the future of, of this event looks like? 
you know, there was a lot of hesitation in 2020 on the upfront. A, we couldn't do it in person. It, it was all new. We hadn't figured it out. There was a big move from buyers and um, agencies to consider calendar year versus broadcast year. Um, for those who don't understand the differentiation, a calendar year is obvious. It's January to December. A broadcast year is an artificial creation, which runs from roughly September to May. Um, there was a lot of noise in 2020 around doing away with the upfront concept and having TV be a, a year-round marketplace. From a historical perspective, I'm not sure how many people know why the upfront happened the way it did in the history um, of, of television, but I'll give you a little bit of a snip. Auto manufacturers used to release new cars in September. That's just how it was. The new models would come out in September. The reason the television upfront marketplace and the fall season was created, it was on the back of when the advertising spend was gonna be heavied up. So little known reason, but if you were looking for the new Chevrolet model, it would come out in September, it would be advertised in September and it would come out in September. So the idea of launching programming is why we had a fall season, not a, why wouldn't it be January? Why wouldn't you start the year with the new shows? It was, it was based on advertising. And the idea was follow the money. Well, that changed, but yet the broadcast year model stuck. And the idea of having to, and it goes back to what I said earlier, uh, flexibility and uncertainty. The other part of the upfront last year was as a marketer would say, I don't know what the, I don't know what's going to be happening. We're, we're, we're in a pandemic. I don't want to make a commitment for 80% of my spend now. I need the flexibility back to what I said. Why? Because we're uncertain. And so there was a willingness to be more flexible. That was all well and good in 2020. 2021, when the numbers come out, and it'll be shortly, I think you're going to see the biggest upfront increase maybe in history. I don't know if that's true for sure, but it's going to be massive. And the upfront's going to be over pretty quickly. A lot of the deals are already done and dusted here at early June. And I think you're going to see that happen. So those who predicted the end of the upfront in 2020 are sadly surprised that in 2021, it seems to back to normal. Broadcast year, large commitments upfront, flexibility going forward a little more. But, you know, people are petrified, buyers, of what the fourth quarter is going to look like. So you're better suited this year to lock in early for fear of a very expensive scatter market. Interesting. And kind of adding to that flexibility, you know, it's no secret that consumers have more options than ever before, but they also have, you know, they only have so much time and money available for brands and streamers to capture. So, you know, looking forward a little bit, how do you foresee brands navigating this, whether it's, you know, the upfront or, you know, and engaging with consumers in CTV specifically? Well, we're not clear yet on how, other than the just straight up AVOD services, how you're going to be able to do that. If, if you think, again, I'll go back to Netflix as an example, uh, and, and right now, even though Disney has said they're doing it, they haven't yet, you can't capture the streaming audience viewers through it, with an AVOD opportunity against two of the biggest, the number one and number two players in the field right now. Now, you could, you can argue because of Hulu, you, you, you can, but you're not attracting all that same content. So right now, we don't have an answer. The answer has to be, um, 
finding the seat at the table in, in streaming. And my guess is save, Am save Netflix, and I just, my bet is they won't enter it. You end up where the only way you're going to reach uh, those consumers is through an AVOD uh, value add. Uh, to an SVOD service. I, I don't know how else you do it. Sure, we can have branded content and content and product placement and other things, but that doesn't get you there. Yeah. You know, I was watching a, a show on Netflix last night, um, watching uh, the Comiskey method, which is quite funny. And, and obviously it's a streamer on Netflix, but there was some really strong product placement. I really paid attention to it. So I saw something about Kellogg's. I saw something about, um, you know, local restaurants, so things that were just pure product placement, but they felt natural. And maybe that's the future of how you reach, you know, the streaming audience. Okay. Well, like NBC, for example, they, they announced like six new innovative kind of ad formats during the upfront. What do you think of, of innovative ad formats and, and what role do you think they, they play? I think, I think that's the future. It's the only way we're going to get there most of us would not opt in for commercial interruption if we had the opportunity to opt out. Unless I was interested in a particular product or service or learning something from, a, from, from an advertisement, why would I want an advertisement in the middle of our conversation? I wouldn't. Unless, you know, maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm a consumer who's in market for a car, Bo. I know this is basic, but I've got to say it. Then I guess I would want to see a new car ad. But I kind of would want to see that when I want to see it, not while I'm in the middle of talking to you. Yeah. And, and that, that's the same thing in content. Now that you have the option, if the cost wasn't a factor, I think the AVOD services would have a hard time in the beginning. But remember, the inextricable link between marketing messages and content is old. That's not new. When I grew up, you realized when you sat in front of your television and you put rabbit ear antennas on the roof and you didn't need cable because we didn't have cable and your TV experience was comprised in Los Angeles or New York, really, of channels 2, 4, 5, 7, 9, 11, and 13. That was it. We didn't have 500, 5,000 channels to choose from. Um, I thought that was free because I didn't have to pay for anything. All I had to do was buy a TV, put the antenna on the roof, and I got it for free. Well, it was never free, Bo. The quid pro quo was my willingness to watch and or listen to the commercial message that was being delivered on radio or television as I was watching. Now, I could choose to get up and walk out of the room or change the channel, but there was a payment. The payment was my time and attention. But there was a failure of consideration for so many people. I'm really going to take you back and tell you the first bit of commercial avoidance began the day they created this device and put it in the hand of a consumer. The remote control was the first ad skipping device. Change the channel. I don't want to watch that ad. I'm going to go watch what's on the other channel because I don't want to see the ad. That's where commercial avoidance started. And, and, you know, it's a challenge for marketers. Believe me, how and where can they tell their stories? Well, it's going to be interesting to see how this whole, you know, kind of mix or kind of lays out, you know, again, speaking of consumers only have so much time and money that they can really give back. And so, you know, to your point, it's not free. 
No, it's not free and it never was. So, uh, you know, I, I think that that's always been a fallacy about, gee, it used to be free over the air television. Yeah. Not if you think of your time as, 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 as a value. Yeah. I guess you're paying one way or the other, right? Right. Well, switching gears a little bit, Can Lion, unfortunately for the second year in a row, it's, it's going to be all virtual. I'd love to know how MediaLink are planning to activate around this all uh, digital festival and what you think can and other live events will start to look like moving forward, given the progress we've made. So what MediaLink are doing is we've uh, commandeered the Whitney Museum, one of my favorite places in the world. Okay. I happen to have a, a very partial to it. I'm blessed to be a member of the board of trustees of the Whitney Museum. So it's a place that's near and dear to my heart. It's one of the great venues in New York City. And what we've decided to do was replicate the MediaLink Beach which normally would be living on the Quasette in Cannes. And we're going to have a full day of programming uh, for our clients and partners with live in-person. Imagine that in June of 2021, but very excited. And it'll be a series of conversations, panels, discussions, interactions, hospitality, and bringing our clients together with marketers and agencies and the like, as we would do if it were in the, in the south of France, number one. We're condensing it from what would normally be a week into a day, number one. So that's a big change for us this year. Can Lions itself is enjoying extraordinary success this year, even without a live event, with Lions Live, which is the platform they've developed, which really founded its sea legs last year and is continuing to thrive this year, waiting like everyone else for next year in 22 when we can be back in person. But we will be doing our hospitality as well. We're very excited. We're having an event with a live, not a living room performance, a live <laughs> performance by Dave Grohl, which is oh, going to be amazing. Uh, Two-time um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame member with Nirvana and Foo Fighters. So yeah. not many people are elected twice, and he is. So we're excited to be able to bring somebody of that caliber talent to a live event in New York. Kind of exciting from that perspective. Yeah, no, it's, it's great to see uh, live events making their way back, um, particularly for you. I know how much you love those. Yeah, look, we, you know, we, we've figured out how to manage virtually all of us. And I think, you know, in the main, I think everyone's done an amazing, actually a miraculous job of finding alternatives um, like this and Zoom. And as I said, all the different platforms that exist, they're live-like. I feel like I'm hanging out with Bo Judah right now. I don't feel like I'm on a video. I, I see you, I can interact yeah. with you and, and it, we've become comfortable with this. I've always disliked being on a conference call when everyone else is in person and you're the person dialing in on a polycom somewhere. You can't read the room, you can't see the expression, you can't do what you do in person. This counts, this is almost like being there. For sure. Wow, I haven't seen a polycom in a long time. See that? <laughs> now that you mention it. <laughs> so again, I'm, I'm excited because we are going to have very interesting panels. My keynote for um, the, the um, Can Lions Live and the Media Link Beach, mm -hmm. um, I'm very fortunate to say, is Reese Witherspoon. Oh, amazing. And um, yes, yes, Bo, I will get my hair and makeup done for that day, <laughs> I promise. Well, before we wrap up, understanding the fact that everything seems to be changing you know, daily at this rate, 
Um, I'd love to give you the opportunity to, to make some predictions about the future. You know, are there any particular trends that you see really accelerating one way or the other? Yeah, look, I think there's going to be a continued push in the M&A arena. I think that Amazon, MGM, and Warner uh, Discovery are not the last two deals of this summer. I think there's a few more coming, number one. Number two, I think, and Triple Lift's been a great example of this, I think the M&A in emerging tech and the platforms are going to continue. So I think that's a trend we're going to see is continued M&A activity and very robust to boot. I also think the agency client relationships are morphing more and more clients, meaning the marketers themselves are taking a direct approach, whether it's in-housing or doing much more negotiating on their own. I think that's a trend that's going to continue. That doesn't mean it's the death of the agency. I think the agencies have to reimagine part of their business, but I think they will stay relevant. And in the center, I just think it's going to be a different sort of a role. So I think that's a trend. And another area that we see with a lot of activity are the retail media networks. Mm -hmm. um, that's an area where I think people need to pay attention, whether it's Amazon or Roundell at Target or Walmart Connect or CVS or Walgreens and Boots or Macy's or Home Depot or Lowe's. Every one of the major retail outlets and companies are creating their media networks. It's the new version of shopper marketing or, you know, optimization for e-commerce. But I think we're going to see a lot of money moving into that direction. And sadly, for most, that's whatever's left to take out of print. And there's not that much. It's likely going to come from there. But it's also creating a new round of frenemies, a word that's near and dear to my heart. Thank you, Ken Auletta. But uh, it's going to create a, a new round of frenemies because people like Walmart or Target or, or you know, as I say, Walgreens or CVS, they're traditionally very big clients of the media sellers. Now they're actually competitors because if you're sitting down with a brand, if you're sitting down with a consumer package goods company and you're one of the large retail media networks, you want them to spend more money with you than they do with the traditional networks. Yeah. So all of a sudden... You know, if you're Walmart, just using them as an example, you're one of the largest advertisers in the country. Now you potentially become one of the largest publishers in the country. That's an interesting change of role. So I think that's a trend that we have to pay attention to. And obviously, the continued boom in e-commerce, that's not going away. Sure. I mean, sure, I can go into the store now more comfortably, but I'm also way more comfortable as are most consumers to buy my goods and services online. You know, I don't think that's going to slow down at any time soon. And look, my parent company has been very active in that space, particularly in optimizing e-commerce. And I think that's an area that's going to have continued growth and excitement around it. And to your point, I think I get packages delivered every day. So yeah, I think some of those were mine. By the way. <laughs> I've been missing a few. Hopefully it's something good. Yeah, well, there you go. Well, thank you so much, truly, for making the time. It's always a, a pleasure to see you and, and really appreciate getting your, uh, your insights. Well, I, I, hope, I hope I was able to share a few nuggets here and there, Bo, but uh, it's my pleasure to spend time with you. And as well, it's great to see you 